couple of things real quick, kind of as a, I don't announce, not really announcement, but but just want to say thank you. Um, I know it's just, it's a little different as we gather, and uh, whether you're joining us online or in person, uh, we know there's just some differences to this. And so we know for some of you, you know, wearing a mask as you come in, you're like, ah, I don't really know about this, but thank you for the sake of the other. Um, and that's why we try our best to create an environment where you feel like you're welcome and wanted and needed. And um, so being the church in these days is really unique, but we still get to be the people of God who connect with each other. So here's my challenge this week. Last week, we gave you an invitation as you left to just hang out outside and meet people. And about 20 of us did, and a bunch of us left. So here's my challenge this week. When you leave the sanctuary today, hang out outside and meet someone new. Um, And if you have to go, we get it. But I would love for you to just connect with one another in that way this week. And so I've been thinking as we continue this series today, I think about a phrase that I've probably said, you maybe have said, I've, I've said, I'm my own man, I can do it myself, you take care of you, I'll take care of me. Have you said that before, ever? I know I have. But the question is, is it true? Is that even a true statement? Are any of those true statements? See, we're in this series, Spring Training, where we talk about these practices, these disciplines we live out. The way in which we are called to live is unique as God's unique people. And so I've been thinking about, you know, my own life, how often I'm like, I'll just figure it out myself. That's usually my my thought process. I mean, unless it comes to something with construction or anything mechanical, then I ask my wife, right? Um, I'm not embarrassed. It's true. But I've been kind of amazed from afar as I've watched this kind of fitness craze that's happened in a particular group of people over the last several years. You maybe have heard of something called CrossFit. Never participated in it myself, but I've just kind of watched it. And so what's fascinating to me is that it's kind of taken over, but it's these group workouts together. But, But here's the reality. When it comes to, like, fitness, no one else can do the work for you. I mean, I know. Wouldn't it be awesome if someone else could? Like if someone could actually exercise for me and I don't have to do it and they would do it for me, I'm all in on that. But that's not how it works, right? You still have to do the work yourself. But what's been fascinating by me is that what CrossFit has capitalized on is this particular phrase, and I would say it this way. These people are moved by results and people desire to be part of a community with a common purpose. People are moved by results and they desire to be a part of a common purpose people with a common purpose, right? This is challenging for us. So how is it CrossFit people, CrossFitters, as they call themselves, how is it they're made up of people from every political party, varying religions, they're made up of people with different views on gun control and social welfare and education. They all have different views on this, and yet they still gather together because at the end of the day, that particular group is singularly focused on fitness And they singularly believe that together is a better chance of physical transformation than alone. Simple enough, right? What if, what if this idea that they're singularly focused on one thing, that everything else becomes secondary? What if there's actually even a lesson for us there in the church? I mean, what if, what if the followers of Jesus began to do the same thing? What might happen if we began to recognize that we can begin to allow people to speak into our lives, like in CrossFit. If you're doing it wrong, someone will say, hey, like, there's actually a better way to do that. And they'll help you do it the better way. 
And then here's the crazy part. People are teachable. And when they tell you there's a better way to do it, you go, oh, okay, well, let me try the, the other way. They don't say, I know how to do this myself. They go, oh, all right, cool. And they find that they begin to do life together in a unique way, right? It is not that in their search for unity, they choose uniformity. But what if, what if the church recognized we can find unity without even uniformity? What if we began to recognize that really we could be focused enough going in the same direction that the world around us could change, that we could actually be transformed? So today we're talking about the spiritual practice of guidance. And here's how I love how Richard Foster defines the guidance. He says it this way, guidance means the glorious life of hearing God's voice and obeying his word. In other words, learning to hear the voice of God. Wanting to live in such a unique way that God speaks into our life, into our heart, into our mind. It's this idea that we are conformed to the image of Christ. Conformed to the image of Christ. So I can't tell you the number of times I've been in conversation with someone, whether it's inside the church or outside the church, it doesn't really matter. And, and they'll tell me, like, I think Christians should behave this way, or I think Christians should do this, or I think this or that. And so I've found that, like, if I try to argue, it never goes very far. Like, I, it, it's just not valuable. So I started to ask questions, because I found, you know, it's interesting. Jesus asked a ton of questions. You'll notice he rarely gave an answer, but he often asked a question. So I thought, hmm, if he did that, maybe I should embrace that way of life. It makes more sense. So I started to ask this question. So understanding the life and teachings of Jesus, would Jesus do what you're wanting to do, or would Jesus say what you're wanting to say. It's interesting. A lot of times I don't get answers. Or I get, yeah, but, that was Jesus. Like, well, okay, if, if you call yourself a Christian, that means you've committed to following Jesus. So if he wouldn't do it or say it, you probably shouldn't either. Interesting, right? Like I, but, but often I'll either get that response or I'll get this response. Huh. You know, I, I don't really spend a lot of time with the Gospels. I don't really read the words of Jesus a lot. So I, I guess I can't say for sure what Jesus would or wouldn't do. Fair. That's actually a great answer. At least you're honest about that. The scary part for me is when people respond and go, well, yeah, I think for sure Jesus would do that. And I'm going, you haven't read the Gospels at all because he actually said the opposite of what you just said. Huh. Understanding the life and teaching of Jesus, would he say what I want to say or would he do what I want to do. See, what I notice all throughout the scriptures is that often the people of God, people who are seeking to be followers of God, the people of God, they didn't do what God invited them to do. Right? So one of the most, most pivotal stories in the Old Testament, maybe the most important story of the Old Testament, is the Israelites' exodus out of Egypt. You've seen the movies possibly, right? You know, Moses leads them out, all that kind of thing, right? But Moses leads them out... <laughs> And the Israelites are led out of Egypt. They've been in slavery. They've been in bondage. And God sets them free. But God invites them to a way of life that, that, frankly, they weren't really ready for. And so they get out of Egypt, and they're like, oh, it was so much better as a slave. I'm so hungry. So God answers. He gives them food, manna and quail. It's kind of a crazy story. Then, not, not much longer, oh, we're so thirsty in the desert. God, did you just send us there to die? We should be slaves again. They keep forgetting what God has already done, right? So Moses strikes a rock, they have water. Pretty cool story, right? Then, 
they find themselves again wandering in the desert and they go, oh, Moses has been gone too long and God is not with us in person. So we need new gods. And so they take all their gold and they say, this calf just jumped out of the fire. By the way, that, that doesn't happen. In other words, God, we like the idea of what you want to do, that you want to set us free, but not so sure that you're doing the right way. And so what we find in this story is this truth, that it was easy to get the Israelites out of Egypt, but it wasn't nearly as easy to get the Egypt out of the Israelites. Easy to get Israelites out of Egypt, not so easy to get Egypt out of the Israelites. And that's true for our own lives too, right? Because what they began to recognize is that God was inviting them to a new way of life. And like most of us, if it's new and I don't know it, I don't like it. You mean, God, you want me to live a unique new way in the world? Yeah, but I don't really know that way. He's like, yeah, that's the, kind of the point. If you had known the way, you wouldn't have to live a new life, right? You just live life you were already living. But the problem is the life you were already living led you to a place that you wish you hadn't gone. And we see the Israelites, they continue this theme all throughout the Old Testament, right? We see next they, they have these prophets who lead them and they go, oh, you know, these prophets are great, but God, we really need a king. And so they get a king. Saul, eh, not a great king. David, okay king. Solomon, not a good king. Huh. And then we fast forward to Jesus. Jesus enters into the picture. Now there's a new way of life, a new way of understanding, not just what it means to be the people of God, but what it means to know who God actually is. And Jesus speaks into their lives and offers this new alternative, this new way of living, this new people called his church. And you're to be a unique people, my unique people, to follow after me, to love as I love, to live sacrificially with hope. And yet what happens is Jesus then gives this kind of beautiful picture of what his church should be. I love these words from John chapter 13, verses 34 and 35. Here are the words of Jesus. A new command I give you. Love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. Great picture, right? And then we see Jesus crucified. The early church starts, and there's this thing called the Day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. And it's just this kind of great movement of God. It says 3,000 people that day decided to follow Jesus. I mean, it's, it's a pretty incredible story. In fact, I'm going to read these verses from Acts chapter 2, verse 32 and 3, which says this. All the believers were in one heart and mind. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all. Did you catch that? One heart and one mind. Unity. Man, I know like sometimes we read the, the New Testament, we're like, man, I just would have loved to have been part of the early church. I'm like, yeah, really? I don't know that I would have. It sounds great at the beginning. And then a bunch of them are martyred. They're killed for their faith. And then we jump to Acts chapter 15, and we see this scene where they start arguing didn't take very long, right? Just a few chapters later, they're arguing about what it means to be God's unique people. They're arguing about circumcision. I'm sorry your kids are here today. You can have that conversation at home. But they're arguing about whether they have to do this or don't have to do this, about food sacrifice to idols, and they're arguing back and forth. But you know what? 
in that group, not one of them had the right answer, but collectively, together, they came to a place of unity. But unity doesn't last a long time. If you jump to the end of chapter 15, we see the Apostle Paul and Barnabas arguing about a guy named John Mark. Paul said, ah, he got scared before. I don't want him with me. And Barnabas goes, give him a second chance. He's fine. Paul goes, nope. So Paul and Barnabas, they split. Like their unity went out the window and they left each other. And yet, a few chapters later, we see kind of a cool thing happen in the story. Paul goes, hey, um, can you guys send me John Mark? Can you send him to me? Because I'd really like to to have him work with me. Because apparently whatever it was that, that Paul had had, felt, had such an issue with, John Mark had overcome, and Paul was smart enough to forgive him and realize and basically say, I was wrong, will you forgive me? I was wrong, will you forgive me? Probably a good thing that happened, because, you know, the, the Gospel of Mark, the book in your Bible, in which they say 90% of the other Gospels come from, um, that would be written by the same John Mark. Apologies are okay among the people of God. Unity is to be sought. Love is to be given, right? Are you seeing a theme over and over again? See, we can disagree on lots of things. But we have to still try to seek unity together. Love must win out. Period. You see, we can be singularly focused on following Jesus so that everything else become secondary. We can be singularly focused on following Jesus so that everything else becomes secondary. What might that look like? Well, how do we, how do, we do that together, right? Because that's one of the things we're talking about, corporate disciplines. And, and when I say corporate, some of you go, oh, you mean business. No, I mean community of people. A corporate people is a church. So we have corporate disciplines, we have communal disciplines, practices that we're to embrace together. So we recognize, right, we can't get there alone. We can't become the God's unique people by ourselves. That's not possible. You cannot do it, right? I said earlier, I can do it myself. I can't, and neither can you. I'm my own man. Cool. But I still can't get where I want to go by myself. And here's what we can't say to other people. You take care of you. That doesn't work either among the people of God. Well, shoot. That kind of goes against much of everything we believe in the culture in which we live. I can't do it myself, and I can't tell you to take care of yourself. We have to help one another. See, this is what becomes so unique about the church, the people of God. Corporate guidance happens individually and communally. It happens for all of us. And by ourselves. Right, so I love this story in 1758. 1758 in Philadelphia, the group of Quakers, you know, the Friends Church, they gathered together and they were there to celebrate kind of what God was doing. And then something happened in their church that really is unique. 1758 in the United States, slavery was still very, very real. And churches were pretty silent on it at that point. I mean, sure, there were some that might not do it and those kind of things, but there really wasn't this push. And so at this Quakers meeting, eventually someone stood up and said, you know, all people of all races are created in the image of God. That's what the scriptures tell us. So no person should be owned by another person. In fact, I go so far to say, 
No person should be seen as anything but the reflection of God. Because every person is the image of God. And so there at that Quaker meeting, not only did they decide that slavery should never exist, and they would be advocates against it, but then all those who were there present, because their brothers and sisters in Christ said to them there in that meeting, if you have owned slaves or you own slaves, you should pay restitution for the years of service they have been your slave. You should give them fair wages. You know what happened in that gathering in Philadelphia in 1758? The people who had owned slaves listened to their brothers and sisters and said, you know what, you're right. They weren't defensive. They paid restitution. And they asked for forgiveness. It's an incredible story about what happens when a corporate church, a community of faith, gathers together and says, you know what, we're going to allow God's spirit to drive our decision making. We're going to make decisions based on who God calls us to be. And not only that, I won't be defensive, but I will listen to those who are further along spiritually than I am. It's an incredible story. It's one of my favorite stories because this is what happens when unity begins to take place in a church. When we're guided together in the same direction, radical change does happen. It is possible, and God is at work in that, but it requires us to be humble. But church guidance doesn't happen just in big groups. Sometimes it happens individually. Sometimes we need a person to help lead us. We sometimes call them spiritual directors or mentors, right? And they help us to begin to take these words from 1 Corinthians 10 and apply them to our life. These words that Paul writes are this. So whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. In other words, everything in your life, do you do it for God's glory or do you do it for yourself? Do you do it so that, that it is an act of worship or you do it so you can get ahead in some way that maybe puts others behind you. And so what spiritual mentors or directors do is they come alongside us and say, hey, listen, what was your heart in that? Why did you do that? They ask us questions. They challenge us. They push us to go deeper, right? It's helping us to recognize all of our life needs to be seen in light of Jesus. All of it. Whatever we might want to hide in the darkness, someone spiritually helps us go, "Mm, I don't think you want to hide that any longer. So I was thinking about my own life. Um, so for about seven years before I moved here, a guy named Mark Holcomb and I met um, every Tuesday. And we just talked about life. And he kind of was a spiritual mentor of mine. Actually, our youth pastor, Chase, it's his uncle. Um, didn't know that all the time, but there you go. And then um, I think about a time right before that. I just got out of college, and David Wine had done our premarital counseling. and was kind of a mentor of mine. And... I was talking about something I was really frustrated about, and he goes, well, frankly, you just need to get over yourself. Oh. I was looking for a sympathetic ear, and he called me out and told me to knock it off. He's one of the most gracious, loving, kind man. He told me to get over myself and knock it off. Just this week, I scheduled another meeting with a guy who's agreed to be the spiritual director in my life, and so we meet between here and where he lives, and so we're meeting August 1st again. See, I don't think it matters where we are spiritually, but you find someone to invest in your life, and then you invest in someone's life. Now, some of us in this room might be really new to faith, or not even sure yet. No, you should probably not be a spiritual director or mentor for someone. That's a bad idea. But everyone should have someone who's investing in them spiritually, guiding them, and then here's the hardest part about it. Like I'm speaking from experience here. You gotta be willing to listen to them. 
that's by far the hardest part. When they speak into your life and they tell you not to do something or to do something, you got to be willing to hear it. It's hard for a lot of us. And see, here's the thing that's hard about spiritual maturity. It's not defined by age. I've been taught by young people and gone, oh, man, he or she, I think they might be further along in their journey than I am. And I've met some old people. I know I'm further along in my journey than they are, right? Like, it's not a knock. Spiritual maturity is not defined by our age. It's this reality that God invites us into this particular way of life. And so what's that look like? Here's a, here's a few bullet points that, that I think are helpful. See, small groups of believers gathered together can help us discern God's direction. So if you're not a part of a small group of our church, a connect group, they meet again this fall. We're taking the summer because it's a weird time anyway. But this fall, when we launch them again, be in a group. See what happens when your group begins to pray over something in your life and, and maybe give some direction and guidance to your life. Be a part of a group. You can pray together. The second point is this. Corporate guidance must always be done with grace, with a desire to seek the Spirit, We can't always know the answer. And when we approach everything as if I know the right thing to do, we often miss it. And then we need to understand kind of the character and nature of Jesus. See, we have to remember, it's not the way of Jesus to crush the weakest person or to snuff out the smallest hope. You need references. There's some scriptures you can look up. We have to force our power upon someone else than it isn't the way of Jesus. It's why, so the crazy example, it's why we don't mandate people wear masks in the church. We recommend, especially if you're going to sing. It's not because we don't, we're not policing. We're not trying to be anything other than We don't want to snuff out people. We don't want to be coercive and forceful. Although there are times when we speak the truth in love. There are times when maybe our words sound forceful because Jesus' words sometimes sound forceful, but he never tried to snuff out a person or push away the poor or the oppressed or the marginalized. So anytime the church speaks in those ways, it's not representing Jesus. So I might say it this way. Um, If the church was all that it could be, I love these words from Dallas Willard. I, I, I think they're great. He says it this way, the aim of God in history is the creation of an all-inclusive community of loving persons with himself included in the community as its prime sustainer and most glorious inhabitant. That's what the church should be. And I love these words that go along with it, and you don't have a quote for this, but I'm just going to read it to you. So just listen to these words as I read them slowly. Such a community lives under the immediate and total rulership of the Holy Spirit. They are a people blinded to all other loyalties by the splendor of God. A compassionate community embodying the law of love as seen in Jesus Christ. A community in the process of total transformation from the inside out. A people determined to live out the demands of the gospel in a secular world. They are tenderly aggressive, meekly powerful, suffering and overcoming. Such a community, cast in a rare and apostolic mold, constitutes a new gathering of the people of God. 
What if we embrace that? I love love these couple lines. Embodying the law of love as seen in Jesus, tenderly aggressive, meekly powerful, suffering and overcoming. See, we become our best selves when we're open to the Holy Spirit and open to one another. You can't do it yourself, and neither can I. We become our best selves when we're open to the Holy Spirit and open to one another. That, for us, becomes powerful. So here's my challenge today. It's simple. Find someone who's in a deeper place spiritually than you are and ask them to invest in your life. And if you think you're in a deeper place spiritually than someone else and you want to go invest in their life and they don't ask you to, don't do it. It won't work. They have to ask you first. That's how mentoring works. But if you desire to go to a place you've never gone before, then invite someone to speak into your life in a way no one has ever spoke into your life before. As a church, we want to become this unique people of God. People, as Dallas Willard says, this all-inclusive community of loving persons. I love that line. With God himself as participant and in the center. See, God desires for us to live in a world that is radically changed and transformed, in which heaven comes to earth. That's the Lord's Prayer, which we're going to pray in just a moment together. But it happens. It happens when we're changed individually and collectively. It doesn't happen by ourselves. So the question I have for us today is, what voice do we hear the most? Are the voices we listen to the most what we find on social media or on news, television, Are we more shaped by political pundits or are we more shaped by the words of Jesus? What shapes us more? Where do we invest the most of our time? What voice carries the most weight with us? And these days I get nervous because we're moving into the political season, which, by the way, Jesus is not a Democrat or a Republican. He wouldn't embrace either party. It's his kingdom looks radically different than both. But Jesus invites us to a unique way of life. The question for us is, what voice is shaping our lives? What voice are we listening to? What voice is it that invites us to know him? Do we hear the still, small, quiet voice, or do the voices we find on social media, on the news, do they drive us more than anything else? It's a question you and I have to answer. And so maybe, maybe if we embrace the prayer that Jesus invites us to pray, I'm just going to read a couple of lines from it, or just say a couple of lines from it, and then we'll kind of talk, we'll pray it together, right? Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. We just trespasses, but still, you get the point. Forgive me as I forgive others. Right? We all are good with the idea of forgiving me, but sometimes the idea of forgiving others, ooh, that's kind of hard. Or maybe, maybe for us, when he says this, thy kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. Too often I hear Christians say, oh, I just can't wait for Jesus to come and I can go to heaven. I mean, read your Bible better because heaven comes here. Heaven comes here. It's the restoration and the recreation of all things. Heaven is what comes here. It's what Jesus says again and again. It's the recreation, the restoration, the redemption of all things. Read Revelation 21. That's what the invitation is. A new heaven and a new earth. It's why Jesus prays this prayer. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's why the resurrection of our bodies, this idea that God has a world that he has created that has no more pain and no more sorrow and no more tears. And there will be a day when that world is real and we are invited into it 
what if we lived as if it were true already? What if heaven came here now? And then we end the prayer with, the words aren't actually in the scriptures, but we, we use them anyway. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever, amen. In other words, the end of the day, God, we know we can pray this prayer because you're God and we're not. We can pray this prayer because we know at the end of the day you conquered even death itself, that sin doesn't even reign with you. We know we can pray this prayer where we say, will you forgive us? We hope us to have just enough for today. We hope us to live in such a way that heaven comes to earth. And we'll pray all this because we know that you forgive us and you ask us to forgive others. And so will you pray that prayer with me in closing today? Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever. Amen. Well, before you go, I have just a couple announcements. The first is... If this is your first time in person with us, since we've just been doing this two weeks, you'll notice we didn't pass an offering plate. There's a box in the back if you're in person and you were prepared to give today. Otherwise, you're still able to give online. So if you're watching online or if that's just easier for you in person, we ask that you do that as well. Uh, the second is July 8th. We're going to be doing an ice cream social distancing style. So bad pun, and that's okay. Um, we're... On July 8th, we're going to be meeting. Look, watch out for location and times on that. So that'll be on our social media, and so watch for that. We'd hope to see as many of you there as possible. And then as you leave today, just try to let people that are behind you get out the doors first to just maintain some safety and some social distancing. You won't be ushered out, but just kind of watch the people behind you. So have a great morning.